Well, good morning, beloved. I'm Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. Welcome those who are here, those who are joining us on live streaming. Uh, this is the fourth and final week of a series titled Miraculous. We've been examining some of the incredible miracles in the Gospel of John. Next week, we'll start a series titled Godhead, where we'll look specifically at the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and some of the attributes of the Trinity. And so, if you haven't picked up your Bible reading plan, that's what this is. You can access that right out of the, in the atrium and outside the doors here. Also, get it on our app and website. So, I want you to imagine yourself walking downtown in the natty, coming upon a man on the street corner. Very busy street corner. He's got a nearly empty Folgers coffee can and a sign that reads, and that's a handmade sign. Maybe somebody made it for him because it says blind since birth. Any help would be appreciated. What would you think? What would you do? Would you pull out some chains, throw it in the coffee can, break out the wallet or the purse, put some cash in there? You know, it's really highly irregular to see a beggar like that these days, blind since birth. I don't think anyone would interview him. Maybe we would ask him some questions. But he gets asked some questions by Jesus and his disciples as they passed by because the same thing happened thousands of years ago when they came across a blind beggar. And today, today's scripture, John chapter 9, we find them walking past a blind man. And one of the disciples sees him and chimes up with a question that makes them all stop in their tracks. And I wonder if this beggar tuned in to the conversation. And then one of the disciples says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a question. I don't necessarily know if it's a good one, but Jesus' disciples are trying to wrap their brains and understand the why behind, why things happen to some people and why things happen others in those differences and imagine that being a blind man hearing this question in this conversation and I bet he just leaned into that to hear it the response from maybe this man he heard about Jesus Christ it would be hard to blame his sin for or that sin for his condition Although there were some schools of thought that believed that you could actually sin in the womb. <laughs> Was he blind because of some sin of his parents? And after the question, maybe he thought to himself, Wait, my mom and dad are good people. They always did their best to care for me. But Jesus responds to the disciples, Neither this man nor his parents have sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. If you remember last week, when we looked at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said something very similar to that about why he chose to raise 
Lazarus. It was all about glorifying God and increasing faith. And God says to us today, this man's disablement has nothing to do with personal or generational sin, folks. It is so the work of God might be displayed in a life. God was going to use this man's blindness to do something great that would make a difference in his life and the life of those around him. In verse 6, it says this then, and check this out. After saying this, he spit on the ground. The divine son of God wallows up a hawker and he spits into the dirt and then he starts making some mud. Ooh, man, that's gross, isn't it? You're like, seriously, Jesus, that's peculiar. And then to finish the miracle, Jesus rubs the the mud on this guy's eyes. I don't know if it was his eyelids or, or his eyes, you know, and rubs it in there. And then says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The scripture says, so when the man went and washed, he came home seeing. Imagine that blind man hearing divine spit and dirt formulating this as something that was going to change his life forever. The blind man gropes his way to the pool or maybe somebody walks in there. He washes that concoction off of his eyes. And then all of a sudden, bam, can you imagine that dude? He sees things that he has never seen before. He doesn't even know what human beings look like. He doesn't know what trees, water, color, people. Imagine that just for a second. Wow, it takes my breath away. And because of his celebration, news travels fast. The town knows that this beggar And you would too, if you passed him every day on a street corner, on your walk to work, miracle, healed. And of course, inquiring minds want to know, who did this? Who did this? Some guy named Jesus. People notice change. When a blind man regains his sight, people notice that. When lame people walk, it attracts attention. When crotchety, mean-spirited people become loving, gracious, kind, people notice. They become curious about the fact that people are totally different and transformed. A person without hope becomes filled with hope. People want to know why. It's a natural reaction to change. Someone's life is transformed. We notice, we become curious, and we ask why. What caused this change? What's the causation of that reality? After I became a Christian, I went to visit my parents in Indiana. They knew something was different. (laughs) Mom's watching in Florida. Didn't you, Mom? They asked me questions, and I had a hard time explaining the change. The reality was the eyes of my existence were open to the grace and truth of God. The reality was that my purpose was established. I wasn't the same uh, cocky college frat boy. (laughs) God washed the eyes of my heart in the pool of his love. And I know that sounds gooey, sentimental, but that's the only way I could put it. (laughs) I can't describe it. 
That's the reality. I experienced forgiveness and love almost simultaneously at an altar in Pickwell, Ohio in 1991, May 1991. I was on a college retreat called Chrysalis. I was sponsored by two people from this church. And one sitting right over there with her mask on. My beautiful, hot-smoking wife. It was now that, but she wasn't that way. I broke up with her, and she said, do you still want to come on this retreat called Chrysalis? I was like, yeah, I signed the paper. Put me on it. I went with Pete Teremi, a frat brother. Pete Teremi and Jonathan drove home. Changed. And I think the only way I could put it was, I once was blind, but now I see. It's as simple as what this blind man said. Neighbors are curious. These The same goes for this blind man. These religious leaders are curious too. And you would think they would be excited, rejoicing with this guy over the miracle. Isn't God good? Or they would say, this man is amazing. He's able to see now. But they are not. They're frustrated. Jesus broke one of their rules. (laughs) You're not supposed to heal the people on the Sabbath, they would say. So they start to interrogate the blind man. They've already made their minds up about Jesus. Their stubborn hearts do not beat with love, but just legalism. That's it. The miracle is totally irrelevant to them, and even irreverent. (laughs) They just need to get proof that Jesus is a bad man because he goes against everything that they are. Jesus performed a miracle. And miracles are from God. Therefore, Jesus is God. But these religious guys, they have a totally different logic. And it goes like this. Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath. That's against the law. Jesus, therefore, is a lawbreaker. Therefore, Jesus is a sinner. Legalism, folks, at its finest. Chapter 9 is full of back-and-forth questions steeped in legalism, judgment, condemnation by religious people who can't see past their noses. And they go to his parents. They're trying everything. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How can he now see? Well, we know this is our son, they say. But we don't know why he can see now. And I think maybe behind their words, they're probably scared of being excommunicated by their religious leaders. So they go back to the man formerly known as blind since birth. They are relentless. Admit Jesus is a sinner, they say. Listen to the blind man's response, and I just said it. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. Cha-ching. <laughs> Simple testimony but incredible testimony. I love how I was reading Senior Pastor Mark's, uh, he gets his sermon done two weeks before. <laughs> I, I get to read it. And I was, I was reading his sermon, and I got a quoting, because this is powerful stuff. He puts this sight man's reaction like this. His life has been changed. He didn't try to debate theology with Pharisees. Look, I've never been to seminary. I didn't debate ecclesiology or eschatology. I've never taken classes in hermeneutics or homiletics. I don't know all about the different world religions. I don't know the difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and toilet paper rolls. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. All I know is what happened to me. 
Man, that's some good stuff. Woohoo! I had to put it in there. Imagine their frustration. They can't say a word to that fact. Silence, crickets, is all that is heard. All they come up with is this. Well, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow Jesus, we don't even know where he comes from. That's all they could respond to. This healed man's logic is off the charts. I am no longer the same. Jesus has made all the difference, and now that is remarkable in my life. And I don't know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does to his will. Nobody has ever heard the opening of the, of the eyes of the blind. You look at this. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So how did the religious leaders take it? All you see is blind and stubborn hearts. Mm. All you hear from this beggar is a line out of amazing grace. I was blind, now I see. Lost, found. Total transformation. They throw him out. They are totally hard-hearted goobers, man. And it's just hard to watch and read this. They just don't get it. They didn't want to believe in Jesus. They wanted to stay in control. It's always easier to doubt than believe. It is. Because if believe... Life will automatically change. That's the automatic response of God. (laughs) When you believe, you change, man. When you get it, you're never the same. And it makes your world become like this blind man seeing everything in real living color. And that's the way we should be. I believe it. It gets deep into your bones, that fire you can't help but to testify through every source of communication, you were blind, but now you see. And that's who we are. That's in our DNA. Why do we prefer sometimes to hold on to doubt? But doubt does lead to discovery. And God is patient with our doubt. But that that doubt has to transform into belief at some time, and it has to take control over our life as the Spirit desires to do in us. So Jesus goes looking for the blind man, and after he gets word that he's been tossed out, verse 35, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? You see, notice how John just goes into that belief. Believe, believe. It's used so many times throughout this beautiful gospel. Remember, the blind man has never seen Jesus. He says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You are speaking to him. And this man, boom, gets to see the very person that healed him. And I bet he had his first tears, man, just flow out of his sight eyes. Man said, Lord, I believe. And then what does he do? He goes automatically into worship. See that response? It's just, there's just a chain of things that happens. And I think it's a chain of things that can happen in your life and then my life. And I believe that. This guy finally gets to see it. And you notice how Jesus did it? What he used for this miracle? He used dirt and spit and ordinary water. Wash. Three ordinary ingredients. Well, maybe not. As you think about this spiritual mixture, uh, there's ordinary mushed with extraordinary because you had this divine spit. And it happens. Material and spiritual coming together. Boom. 
healing. Water, I can see. And that's what happens to us in the blindness of our hearts. You know, it's the DNA of our, our heritage, folks. Where does this church come from? We celebrate 200 years this year. 200 years. Where did this extraordinary ministries develop in and outside of Anderson Hills? Here's a brief history. Reverend John Wesley. Born June 17th, 1703. 15th of 19 children. woo Reverend Samuel and Susanna. They were busy people. He graduated from Oxford University, became an Anglican priest in the Church of England. Beginning in 1729, he participated in a holy club, and they began to just believe and dig into the scriptures and allow that scriptures, those scriptures to transform their lives. The group was organized by his brother Charles, who was also a priest. Critics ridiculed them. They called them Methodists because they had a methodical way of studying in their spiritual growth. They were trying to live out their faith by following rules they had all set up. And they were kind of like rule follower, pharisaical Christians. A turning point in Wesley's life followed after a disastrous two-year missionary trip to Savannah, Georgia. He came home feeling like a huge failure. Depression set in. He began to doubt if he were even a Christian. On May 24, 1738, Wesley attended a Bible study at Altersgate Street in London. Listening to the reading of Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans, he heard an explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith. Wesley would later journal, I felt my heart strangely warm, he wrote. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. The divine finally broke into the spiritual heart of John Wesley. And his heart could see. As Paul writes, open the eyes of my heart. And we have that as well. And like Wesley, we can experience that together. He began to see it. And it put Wesley into motion. Not long after that, Wesley accepted an invitation from his friend George Whitfield to preach in the field to coal coal miners in Bristol. He said he had, till very lately, considered preaching outside the building as almost a sin. He just wrote that in his journal not too, before, not too, you know, before that. That's what I'm trying to say. And these miners' responses led to him to preach to the working class, where he found very little welcome in the established church, who were inward, focused. It met Wesley to conclude, the world is my parish, And the Methodist revival began to spread like wildfire. It soon spread to Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and to America. And it was extraordinary. It was the ordinary turned into extraordinary. And after the United States war with England, Wesley decided it was time for a new church. That he said should not be a dead sect. The Methodist Episcopal Church... In the United States was born in Baltimore on December 24th, 1784. It was called the Christmas Conference. Two preachers, Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch, were set apart to be the new leaders of this new movement. 
America was growing, and so was the church. Settlers began to move into Ohio as peace with the Native Americans was made. And many of these settlers were Methodist. And that included Anderson Township, folks. In 1797, Francis McCormick, a pioneer and Methodist preacher, came from Virginia. He formed the first Methodist class meeting in Milford, Ohio. That class meeting was a small group of about 12 people. They met for spiritual growth and fellowship, much like the, the life groups that we have today here at Anderson Hills. In 1810, McCormick bought 600 acres in Anderson Township and built a small church at the corner of Salem and Sutton. You can see a picture of it right there. Now, if you take the seven-minute drive over there, you will find Francis McCormick's grave, his tombstone, right next to the church. That same year, Bishop Asbury came to our community. Asbury was born in England into a working-class family, had a very, very rough childhood, a lot of abuse, from a, especially from a school instructor. At 26, though, he began to feel a calling to come to America after he gave his life to Christ. And when Wesley asked for volunteers, Asbury came forward. And he wrote this, why am I going to the new world? Is it for honor or money? No, I am going to live to God and bring others to do so. You see how that ordinary becomes extraordinary. He rode and he preached all across the nation. He was a circuit rider. You know he rode over 270,000 miles on horseback. Man, I don't think my car is ever going to get that mileage. He preached over 16,000 sermons. He led a new denomination as bishop for 36 years until he died in 1826. During this time, Methodists grew from the smallest denomination to the largest in America. Asbury was uneducated. And you know what? He was a surprisingly poor preacher. <laughs> Most people found his sermons hard to follow. He was kind of like scatterbrained, you know, bird, squirrel. You know, but he still was able to preach the gospel and communicate it. And God took that ordinary man and did extraordinary things with him. He was well known and loved that they built a statue of him in Washington, D.C. on 16th Street, and it is still there today. Ten years later, this township began to establish and build public schools. And one of these schools that was built was built on Eight Mile Road, about a half mile south of Beachmont. And for the first few years, it was used for a meeting place for the Methodist Society. A society of, uh, was the Methodist called a church. And it began to meet with several classes and begin to grow. Here's a picture of the building. In 1825, they were officially charted and became known as Asbury Methodist Episcopal Church, named after their beloved bishop. And in 1835, they purchased land at the corner of what was called Five Mile and Mulberry Ridge. Today, <laughs> Five Mile is called Forest and Mulberry is called, what do you, do you know? Asbury. Isn't that cool? So cool. They built their first church there. By 1920, they had outgrown the building, so they bought a substation of the uh, inner urban traction line. They remodeled it. They renamed it Forestville Community Methodist Episcopal Church. It stood where the Arby's is today, right down the road there. It was nicknamed the powerhouse because of that long church name. But Anderson Township was growing. When Beachmont Levee was completed, a bridge that came over, what, what river is that? 
Well, anyway, it's not, you know, down there. And um, between 1960 and 1980, that was, that, Anderson Township doubled in size. 34,000 people. Farmlands were turned into subdivisions. And our church grew with it. And you could see Methodism all around. There's Cherry Grove United Methodist Church. There's Clough United Methodist Church, which I used to pastor. And you had Salem United Methodist Church and Mount Washington. You could see Methodism all over the place here. And these, these, the organization of these, the building committee for this place was C.B. Air, A-Y-E-R. We have Air Elementary, William Judd, Pearl Muchmore, Gail Owens. They, brought that, they bought that property and began to build, build their first unit of what we call Kids Rock. In 1953, they built a parsonage. They changed the name once again to Anderson Hills Community Methodist Church. In 1959, they built a sanctuary. Then in 1966, they added more children's classroom, the chapel. And in 1990, they built the adult classrooms, the choir suite. And in 2000, they built this building right here. And today, we look like this. Today, amen. <laughs> I like that little drone shot. Today, we're the fifth largest United Methodist Church in the state of Ohio and in the top 200 in the nation. Why? Why? Oh, I know personally why. Transform by the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking the message out. When they encountered this blind man, they were outside the synagogue. They were walking around, spreading the gospel message. The miraculous was happening. And those men and women who b- bought this property had the foresight, didn't they? We have a great location here in the heart of the community. But the reason we have grown is because they stayed focused on the mission. Throughout our 200 years here in Anderson Township, it's still the same. It's to help people find Christ to make disciples. And that is the why behind everything. Thing. There's no other reason we exist. I heard my call in ministry in the sanctuary about 136 feet. I measured it, I walked it off. Third pew from the pulpit. I gave my life to Christ in May 1991 through two people from this church, and then I heard my call in the ministry July 1991. After I took communion, I had a pressing voice come in and said, Jonathan, I want you, and I focused in on the sacraments. I want you to become a minister of the gospel. I turned to my wife, who I would marry a year later. Well, I was, yeah, we were, she was my fiance by then. And I said, I think God wants me to be a minister. And she started laughing. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's, that's a response. But you see, the ordinary before May 1991 was filled with the divine and the divine extraordinary. It was like the divine spit in dirt, mud, water, sending, transformation. You know, there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. Pandemic, deep division, social unrest, terrorism, hurricanes. And it just seems like 19, or 2020 just keeps spinning up things. Some Christians see this as the possibility that Jesus is going to return soon. But I would like for us to look at this time as an, in another way. It's a wonderful time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful time to have hope and to have strength from above. It's a wonderful time to love and to bring unity with your brother and your sister and your neighbor and your cousin and your boss. It's a wonderful time to testify light in darkness. It's a wonderful time to share the ministry of Jesus Christ that says, I once was blind, but now I see. And have people see that, folks. 
And God wants to commission us in times such as these to continue this mission, our mission, of the miraculous and testifying to the miraculous. You read the New Testament. Jesus could always be found teaching, preaching, healing people out, taking the gospel out. The apostles did the same. They equipped lay people to do ministry. John Wesley, Francis Asbury spent their lives helping lost people find God in those dying, dry times. Methodist circuit writer crisscrossed America, reaching the unchurched and spreading hope and salvation and total wholeness throughout these lands. And don't we need wholeness, man? Now, I don't think there's been a greater time in your life, in my life, than to share this hope, the hope of the world, and be commissioned to do so. In 1920, gosh, I keep getting my dates wrong, 1820, God planted us here for a reason. There's a reason you are sitting here. There's a reason you're watching on live stream. Because like the blind man, we have a reason to just say to folks, you know what? I'm no longer the same. I was once blind. I can see. And that sight should be passed on to others. You don't have to do spit and dirt. All you have to do is just share with anyone that, you, that has ears to hear what God has done in your life. I think we've learned a, a lot in this series on miracles, and it is this. God can work through the ordinary things in life to do the extraordinary, supernatural things. He turns ordinary water into wine. He uses five loaves of fish and uh, two, five loaves of fish, five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000. He spit dirt, water, healed a blind man. And he can use ordinary people to accomplish miracles. He even takes our weaknesses and turns them into strength. I love what's already happening. Salem's already open, man. We are feeding people in the parking lot. We're already doing ministry outside the building because that's our DNA. And we have to take it out as a congregation. The Apostle Paul said, this said it just like this in his first letter to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are, are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before them. You know, God's not looking for the smartest or most talented person to do his work. God's looking for the ordinary person who will surrender their lives to him and be sent in ministry. Maybe that person's you. Yeah, that person's you. I want some blind. But now I see. It's as simple as that, folks. Put that in the words. Put that in your action and in your love. Will you pray with me? We're going to listen, God. But you, because you want to commission us to be alive in you, Christians, missionaries, sent. It's a part of who we are. 
not just as Methodists, but as Christians. Healed. God send us. May we be bold in this time. That's the answer. You're the answer for this hurting world. And you choose to use the ordinary, fill them with your extraordinary Holy Spirit, and send. We pray this in Jesus' name.